I want to start by adding my own words of Pace's prayer earlier from our church to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Just so you know, it meant so much to us when churches reached out from everywhere when we went through what we went through, which is certainly different uh, than what they're experiencing, uh, though I'm sure a lot of the feelings of lostness and grief are parallel. Uh, just know that uh, from us to you, our church stands ready, willing, and able and resourced to help in any way that we can, and it would be our privilege to do so. Before we get to our text today, which is going to be Matthew 21, 1 through 11, uh, which we'll stand to read here in a moment, I do want to, and there's no yeah, great clean segue to this, but I got to put something back on your radar that Kenan actually mentioned, I think, back in one of the first couple Sundays in January. And that is our hope that as the years unfold here at Harvest is kind of part of the legacy we could leave on the kingdom landscape is this internship program that he mentioned a while back, that we could become a hub to both train and raise up marketplace leaders, missionaries, church planters, and that we look back 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now and literally the entire globe is populated with men and women that we've had the privilege of training and growing up in the faith and seeing uh, God's kingdom continually come to earth in and through what he does in them. And so that program is still on. And we're hoping, uh, starting in this August, that probably be a little bit of a pilot year, maybe a smaller crew than we originally intended. But if you know anyone graduating college or in that young adult range uh, that would just love to come and serve, work here at Harvest, uh, partner up with a staff department, grow in their faith, learn what it is to be a marketplace leader, a missionary, a church planter. Just know it'd still be our privilege to do that with them and walk alongside of them. Uh, there's an application process that they can go through. Uh, we're taking those right now and to learn a little bit more about it. Some of our elders put together a really short video. I want to turn your attention to the screens. We're going to start an internship uh, here at the church uh, starting uh, next fall. So we got about nine months here. I just want y'all to be a couple thousand recruiting voices with me. The namesake verse of Harvest Church comes out of Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus looks out and he says that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. We've designed the Harvest Internship to equip young adults to be laborers out in the fields. The purpose of the program is to mature and equip selected candidates through biblical training, practical discipleship within the scope of Harvest Ministries. The big idea is to leave an impact. So we prayerfully desire to effectively fulfill the Great Commission at our church, in our communities, and around the world. This will be a full-time paid internship working approximately 20 hours per week. It will be a seven-day week rhythm of ministry with being discipled, various literature, training in real-world topics, serving, evangelism, and the studying of the whole Bible through the Downline Institute. We want gospel-minded leaders for Christ in every sector of this city or the city where God has called them to serve. And to do that, we need you. So join with us. As Kenan said, we need recruiting voices, thousands of recruiting voices, to draw in participants for this program and in turn, affect the kingdom of God on earth for the next generation. All right, so there you go. Take it and do what you will. Uh, hey, this Sunday and next Sunday are really unique, not simply in their content and not simply in what it means for all of human history, which this week and next week, next week specifically, 
is the single most important event that's ever happened. All of human history uh, is accountable to the reality of Jesus of Nazareth uh, raising from the dead. But if you stop to think, this Sunday and next Sunday are really the only times, maybe somewhere around Christmas, where every single Christian on the globe today, every follower of Jesus, is talking about the exact same thing. We're preaching the exact same thing. This week, Palm Sunday, next week, Easter, you have the global church for this small two-week window all singularly focused on two events. That's really unique. Now, within that, and if you've been in church in any amount of time, you kind of know this Palm Sunday, Easter rhythm. It gets repetitive, right? There are only so many ways you can say, he rode in on a donkey, and they shouted Hosanna, and they waved palm branches, and and I know the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And while I don't think that's necessarily true here with the contempt piece, I will say familiarity can lessen our attentiveness. Certainly mine. I mean, we've heard it before. I've heard the story. You've heard the story. Uh, you wouldn't be a Christian if you didn't know Christ rose from the dead. We've all heard that one for next week. And I think the prayerful way to approach both this Sunday and the next is that God and his spirit would not let us become presumptuous that maybe as we pray each Sunday the Bible really being from God we haven't quite exhausted its depths amen that though the story may be familiar the spirit's shattering of my heart and yours through this story may be altogether new in this season unlike any others and so as we come to the text this morning we don't we don't look to try to do it differently or try to create new angles or try to make it interesting. We simply come to the text asking the Spirit, hey, if there is a unique way right now in 2023 that the triumphal entry in the kingship of Jesus is meant to shatter and mature me in ways it never has, may today be the day. Amen? That if next week... If the reality of the resurrected Jesus and the power of the resurrection, which is made available to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if that is to hit us, though familiar with the logistics, maybe we'd be unfamiliar with the way that God is going to disrupt and shape and call anew. And so we're going to ask God to speak like we do every Sunday. And we're going to ask God to speak amidst the familiarity, asking the Spirit to not lower our attentiveness but to soften our hearts, that we would receive what is a familiar story in maybe new and transformative ways. That being said, if you're able, I do invite you to stand as we're going to read Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. These are the very words of God. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, and this is Zechariah chapter 9, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and cut, others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. 
When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Matthew 21, 1 through 11. The word of God for the people of God. And God's people say, Praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do ask you to speak. And the power of your spirit that you would bring your word home to us, that we would leave here more conformed to the image of your son. So to that end, we pray. To that end, I preach. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. I want to begin this morning by saying, regardless of popular thought or postmodern trends or modern scholarship, I just know that when it comes to the Bible, Jesus is not confused. The Bible is not confused. That Jesus knows exactly who he is claiming to be. And one of the clearest presentations of the clarity that he knows who he is claiming to be is exactly what we just read. He did not come to leave his identity in any sort of ambiguity. And so you get in what are modern thoughts on the person of Jesus and it relates to his identity a couple different options, and probably the one where people try to find the middle road the most is to simply say, and you've heard this, that he was a good man and a great moral teacher. Or if he's a good man and a great moral teacher, if we at least conclude that, then here's what we've done. We've avoided denying his existence altogether, right? There's no intellectually serious person that can actually claim that Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist, so the fact that he is a historical figure means you got to do something with him. Now, you don't really want him to be who the Bible clearly shows him to be. And if you're going to be a good modern thinker, you've got to deny miracles. He obviously couldn't raise from the dead. He can't deny the, the physical laws of science. And so what do you do? Well, you create this third category where he's a good man and a great moral teacher. And I want to tell you, of all the categories available to Jesus, that is the most nonsensical conclusion. The greatest impossibility for him to be is a good man and a great moral teacher. And if you conclude that, and I say this with all gentleness, you are not intellectually serious when it comes to evaluating these claims. Okay, moral teachers do not lie. And good men do not deceive. And Jesus claims to be not just from God, but God. He says, if you believe in him, you don't suffer punishment. He says, if you believe in him, you get eternal life. He says that when he dies, he goes to prepare a place for you. He is not a good man. He is not a great moral teacher because if he's not who he claims to be and you want to put him in that third category, let me just tell you, good men don't lie and moral teachers don't deceive. And he would be the epitome of both. So that idea is not available to us. Now you can, as C.S. Lewis and others have so clearly articulated, you can certainly claim that he is insane. Categorically, verifiably, lock him away, treat him insane. That would be available. Or he's the son of God. There is no middle ground. And when he rides into Jerusalem on this day, on this Palm Sunday, Jesus is putting the entire world on notice. I know who I claim to be. 
Okay, now let's look at it. Up until this point, if you read through the Gospel of Mark, it's really prevalent. You'll see it a few times in Matthew that there are some, some moments where Jesus heals someone, right? And he does it, and they kind of clue in to who he is, right? It's really prevalent in Mark. And, uh, the idea in scholarship is just, you don't have to remember this, but just called the, the messianic secret. It's when Jesus heals someone, he says, now don't tell anybody who I am. Do you remember those moments, some of you? All right, I'll do this for you, but don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. I was sharing this uh, uh, Shannon and I were with the kids the other night talking about Palm Sunday and how there are times that Jesus told them not to tell anyone. They were confused. Well, why would he do that? Why would he not want people to know? Well, Jesus doesn't want them to make him king prematurely because you know what Israel has always wanted? A king just like the Gentiles. That's what they cried out for with Saul. That's what they would cry out for now. And Jesus knows, I am not that kind of king. And if he lets them make him king according to their stipulations, he will not accomplish the purposes for which God designed his kingship. So Jesus, you'll even note another place in the gospel that he does a great work and they're all rushing like this mob wants to immediately enthrone him. And what does he do? He sneaks away. He leaves. He says, I can't take the crown according to your parameters. And so Mark, a good example, chapter 7, he heals. If you remember, there's a man, he can't speak well. He's blind, he's mute, or he's deaf and he's mute. He can't hear, he can't speak. And Jesus heals him. Mark 7. And Jesus says, now don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And that is the rhythm of his ministry as it relates to his identity all the way until Matthew chapter 20. As Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, something happens. And I'm thankful to Dr. Tim Keller. I, didn't, I never saw this until this week. His preparation was really fun. For me, but in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus leaving Jericho on his way to Jerusalem to ride in on the donkey, walks by these blind men. Right, so back up. Look at it with me. In Matthew chapter 20, just flip one page back. Verse 29 says, It went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed, and behold, there were two blind men by the roadside. They heard Jesus passing by and they cried out. Now that's important. The Bible wastes no details. They heard Jesus was passing by, but when they cry out, notice this they don't yell, Jesus. They address him altogether differently. The, uh, passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. And then what does it say? Son of David. This is uh, in Jewish thought. It would be equivalent to these men crying out, King of the universe, King of kings, promised one. Second Samuel chapter 7, when God tells David, someone is coming and one of your, uh, someone from your line is going to sit on the throne forever. He will never be dethroned. Your kingdom will be established forevermore. These blind men in Jesus passing by, this is what they shout out. Son of David, king of kings, the one who is going to reign and rule forever. You know how Jesus answers them? Look a little bit later. Verse 32. And stopping, Jesus said, yes, how can I help you? What would you have me do? This is the first moment in Jesus' public ministry that he responds to someone crying out, son of David, and doesn't tell him to keep it a secret. It's right before he's making his way to Jerusalem. And the disciples hear this. And when they hear this, they are alerted to this idea, it's about to go down. The clash, the moment is coming 
Because Jesus just publicly put everybody on notice. I am the king. Now, we know as we get into chapter 21, some more clues and clarity uh, that Jesus is not confused in what he's claiming. Because we saw at the beginning of our passage this morning, as they drew new to Jerusalem, he sends his disciples to go out and find the donkey and the colt. That is direct fulfillment. Uh, so there are going to be two things we find in these first five verses that add even more clarity to at the end of chapter 20 that Jesus is not confused. Right, so he sends them out. Zechariah chapter 9, he says, your king has come to you on a donkey. He sends them to find the donkey. So the first thing is prophetic fulfillment. Jesus is going to fulfill prophecy strategically and intentionally, saying, this is me. The second thing is the requisition of personal property. This is only possible for a king. Only a king could go to someone and say, what you have, I need, and it not be theft. This was legal. This was permissible, but only if a king claimed it. So in taking the donkey and preparing to ride on it, we have both fulfillment of prophecy and requisition of property, both things only available to a true and rightful king. But lest Jesus be confused, say, okay, maybe he thought he was presenting that, but they, nobody thought that. Nobody clued in to what he was trying to do. Sure, he was in his own head, in his own mind. He was trying to make this big statement, but surely nobody picked up on it. Well, Notice the, the, the disciple and crowd's response. Their response confirms they knew exactly who Jesus was claiming to be. If you were to go back, don't. But if you were to go back, you will find an Old Testament episode that is an exact parallel of what's happening here. So 2 Kings chapter 9, you have Jehu. And Jehu is anointed, I'll read a few verses of it here, not the whole story, but I'll read a few verses here in a moment. Jehu is going to be anointed king. And right after he's anointed, the people respond by doing something. And that response is a normative response when you see someone who has a rightful claim to the throne. So in 2 Kings chapter 9, pick up in verse 11, it says, Jehu came out of the servant. So Elisha sends a servant to anoint him. And just to paint the picture, he kind of takes Jehu into a side room. And Jehu's, all his buddies are out there kind of wondering, what on earth is he talking to Jehu about? Jehu comes out, and now his buddies are going, hey, what, what is that guy? What did y'all talk about? So that's where we pick up the story. He said, why did that fellow come to you? And he said to them, oh, you know his talk. He tried to deflect, and they said, no, that's not true. Tell us. And then Jehu said, well, he spoke to me saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Now watch what happens in 2 Kings 9, 13. Then in haste, every man of them took off his garment, his cloak, and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You know what they did in 2 Kings chapter 9? They took off their cloaks and they laid them down. They took off their cloaks and made a pathway for the king. What does the crowd do in Matthew chapter 21? They take off their cloaks and they lay them down because this is the normal response to a true and rightful king. Harvest, I'm just telling you, there is no confusion in this passage. None. 
He knows he claims to be king. The crowd knows he is claiming to be king. They respond in the exact same way. Israel throughout history had responded to welcoming a king. And again, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he is putting everyone on notice. And I'll borrow this from Dr. Tim Keller. The minute Jesus does this, this singular act, you've either got to crown him or you've got to kill him. So you, we need to start feeling this heightened sense of emotion. Our passage said that the whole city was stirred. This is happening. The only other occurrence that talks about the entire city, entire nation being stirred is when Herod hears that Jesus is going to be born. It's the beginning of his life and it's the end. And he's coming in and everybody knows and his disciple knows it's crown him or kill him because Rome can't let another king live. And the Jewish people have a choice because if he's the Messiah, they know they've got to bow down or they've got to get rid, rid of him. There is no middle option available. Now let me pause there. The same is true for you and me. That's it. That as Christ comes into our lives and as you encounter the Son of God, there are two options. Crown him or kill him. Now we live in a day where we want nothing to be binary. There is no either or. And we have our existence among a culture that is continually trying to find alternative ways. When it comes to the king, it's crown him or kill him. And that's it. So for the Christian, if we're trying to live in this middle gray area, I'm just telling you, from someone with a lot of experience of trying not to live in the extremes of this call, it does not work. And for me to proclaim him to be king and not continually crown him in every moment of every day, hear me on this, that's called treason. Crown him or kill him. Okay, now he rides into all, all so, so let's play the metaphor out a little bit. Oh, goodness, I got to pick up my pace. All right. Uh, and after I said that, I just paused and stared at the clock. All right, so just look at this. Think about this. So, so I'm assuming today that there are people here that don't know the Lord. And by the way, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. Maybe today's the day you encounter the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. I just want you to know, for those of us that have tasted the grace and mercy of the Lord, if you haven't, none of us are here because we're better than you. We're here because God in his kindness showed us our need and we cried out help. That's why we're here. When Jesus rides in, though, let's look at just three quick areas. He's going to ride in, and let's just think about the intellect. He is going to crush every single one of your secular thoughts. And you've got to let them go. Every level of pagan philosophy, he's riding in, and he says, hey, crown me or kill me, but take me seriously. 
right? The most frustrating response that I find of any person is that they flippantly try to deal with the person of Jesus. If you're flippantly dealing with him, I'm just telling you as kindly and gently as I can, you are not an intellectually serious person. Crown him or kill him. But don't pretend like his claims don't matter. It's one or the other. And our hearts, same thing. That we would love for Jesus to be our friend, our comforter, our brother, our helper in a time of need, our, our true and perfect husband is where the bride of Christ wants to be all of those things. And by the way, he is all of those things. But he's none of those things if he's not first king. And you can't want Jesus and all these other manifestations if you don't want to crown him first. Right, he can't be your friend until you bow, bow your knee. He's not going to be comforter until you take off your crown and rightfully acknowledge his. You don't get his peace, you don't get his joy, you don't get his power, you don't get eternal life. You and I don't get to share in any of those blessings unless he is rightfully crowned. And then our bodies. Let's take our physical bodies. You know what he does with our physical bodies? He rides in and he says, crown me or kill me. By the way, you don't have rights over your body. Not ultimately. God does. God does. God says, I bought you at a price. Part of the Corinthian church, you are not your own. Glorify God with your bodies. Jesus says, I'm king over that too. Over your intellect, over your hearts, and over your bodies. Crown me or kill me. But don't treat me like it doesn't really matter. And when he's coming into Jerusalem, he is saying, take notice, this matters, there is no third way. This is Jesus appealing. This is why he weeps. Remember, uh, he, he, he stands out, he, he weeps over the rejection of him, just crying out, just please, take me seriously. This matters. I want to save you and redeem you and love you and draw you close. Take me seriously. Crown me or kill me. I was reflecting this week on this reality. I was actually repenting to the Lord before I came up here for all the ways I don't rightfully acknowledge him uh, as king in every single area of my life. Uh, And I just, I've probably overstated it, but, you know, overcommunication is better than lack of communication. Uh, He is saying that he gets total, complete authority. We need to understand that. We don't get a say-so. It's not a democracy. He doesn't have a parliament. He doesn't have a senate. He doesn't have a congress. He doesn't have a supreme court. There are no checks and balances. It is Jesus the king, period. Now, that could be a scary thought. Because I'll be honest with you, I can't imagine 
a single person I would ever want to give that much authority over to. But notice Matthew, notice Jesus, notice the detail here. Notice how he rides in. See, and it's how Jesus rides in that lets us know, hey, we don't have to be scared of this king. We can actually trust. In fact, he actually becomes the one singular being we would ever want those things to be true of. Because he rides in on a donkey. Again, the Bible wastes no details. So during this time, right, historically considered, uh, if a king was going to ride into a city, he, he, generally speaking, had one of two options available to him. They were intentional and they were strategic. The first would be a donkey. The second would be a horse. Now, if a king rode in on a horse, everyone went, he is coming to crush us. Right? That was a statement of power. That was a bow the knee to me or you are going to be slaughtered. Or... A king could ride in on a donkey. Now, if a king rode in on a donkey, he was proclaiming, you are my rightful subjects. I am the true king over you, but I come in peace. I don't come to hurt you. I don't come to harm you. I come lowly like a servant, and it's an invitation, come to me. You don't have to be afraid. Gentle and humble, he rides in to Jerusalem saying, hey, just come. I'm not here to hurt you. I'm not here to slaughter you. I come in peace. Come to me. Now, how does he accomplish that peace? Well, not by killing them, but by him dying. So what kind of king, if you could imagine, would be the only type of king that you'd feel safe giving all of that authority over to that we just discussed? I'm going to say it's the one that rode in not trying to crush and slaughter me, but the one who was crushed and slaughtered on my behalf. That would be the kind of king that when the entire power of the universe is at his disposal that he didn't take himself down from the cross. It'd be the kind of king that me knowing my own filth would get low and wash my feet. I could trust that kind of king. And Jesus rides in and says, crown me or kill me, but the king is here. Now, in him being king, and I'm almost done, in him being king, there are a few things that are true of that. Here's the first one. A king has final and ultimate authority over every single decision. Let me say it again. Every single decision. There's not anything you or I do as part of our daily rhythms that isn't supposed to be submitted to him. That's in every decision, looking at him and saying, what would you have me do? Every decision, hey, not just the ones we agree with. All of them. Here's what else is true. If he's a king, he's got a kingdom. He's got a domain. There's an abode. The Bible calls that all of creation. This is all rightfully 
his and everything that's in it. So if he's going to be a king, he's got ultimate authority. If he's going to be king, he's got a domain. But you know what else? You can't be a king if you don't have a people. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, you know what Paul says? When we come by repentance and faith and are saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Paul says we are actually ushered out of this earthly kingdom and we become citizens of heaven. That we belong somewhere else. I traveled last November uh, through some difficulties, but we got there to Brazil with one of our elders, Pepper Horn. We did a pastoral training uh, in the very northern part of Brazil. And to get in, now this isn't really, uh, you know, going to shatter your intellect, what I'm about to tell you, but to get into Brazil, I had to have my passport, right? And so you check it, you make sure it's not expired, you go, you get it stamped. But here's what that passport lets everybody in Brazil know. I don't belong here. In fact, my stay is temporary. I've got verified documentation that I, earthly considered, I belong to an entire different kingdom called the United States of America. Now that lets them know. When we come to faith in Jesus, hey, you get a brand new passport citizen of heaven and if we're living like Jesus is king you know what that does that lets everyone here know I belong somewhere else I'm going to live like I belong somewhere else I'm going to think like I belong somewhere else I'm going to worship like I belong somewhere else I'm going to navigate pain like I belong somewhere else I'm going to have a marriage that looks like I belong somewhere else I'm going to raise my kids like I belong somewhere else I don't belong here but while I'm here I'm going to let everybody know My passport, which is a transformed life, says Jesus is king. All right, so I mentioned uh, very briefly earlier that a king could ride in on a donkey or he could ride in on a horse. When he comes and puts the entire city of Jerusalem and thus the world on notice that he's the king, he comes on that donkey. But harvest, he is coming again. And when he comes the second time, do you know what he's riding? He's riding a horse. That's the last time. That's the last moment. And at that point, there is no time left. Revelation 19, on this says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepresses of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is written a name, King of Kings. He is coming again. And it'd be far better for us to encounter the king on the donkey than the king on the horse. And so the plea today 
is for us to look into our own hearts and say, I got to crown them or kill them. There is no third way. There is no third option. And right now, just so you know, the king pleads in grace and mercy just to give himself to you. Come unto me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, and you can have rest. Just trust in the finished work of Jesus. Crown them right now, right here. And crown them every moment moving forward. You know the great thing about our king? Even when we don't crown him, once we know him, he forgives us and loves us. He may discipline us, but he's not going to leave you, and he's not going to forsake you. Harvest one day, the scriptures promise us, one day, every knee is going to bow. It's not like we can get out of it. But it'd be a whole lot better for us to bow out of joyful delight than out of wrathful compulsion. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you're king. And if I'm honest, if I'm honest, there are a whole lot of days where I like the fact that you're king, but it's kind of in name only. And I can come on a Sunday and I can say Jesus is king, and on Monday my life can say crucify him. And I just pray in your kindness and the power of your spirit, would you make our lives more congruent with what we proclaim? That it would be our desire to, yes, ultimately crown you, but also in our daily decisions, recognize who you are. God, if there is anyone here that has that, that they've just been trying to do this middle road that isn't actually available, that in your love and grace and mercy and power of your spirit, would you let them see the beauty of the gospel, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that Jesus was perfect and he took our sin upon himself, satisfied the wrath of God, rose from the dead so that we can live with him forever, that we are proclaimed innocent because God announced him guilty though he had no sin of his own. God, that we can trust the king that rides in on the donkey, that lays down his life, that washes our feet and that raises from the dead. So we don't want to kill him. We want to crown him. And may that be the cry of all of our hearts today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.